Welcome to House of Fire and Blood, the podcast where we ask what if George R. R. Martin's Fire and Blood were told more like HBO's House of the Dragon. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm sure you recognize that that is not the voice of either myself or Caroline. Um, but before we introduce our esteemed guests, uh, my name is Gretchen. I use they, them pronouns. Um, I am here with my usual co-host, Caroline. Hello, my name is Caroline. I use she, her pronouns. And we are here with our first guest. We're very excited about Musa. Hello, my name is Musa. I use he, him pronouns. And I'm on here by virtue of the fact that, like, I sometimes pester Caroline about <laughs> House of the Dragon <laughs> enough that, like, she remembered to invite me onto this. Yes. So, the so you and I were two of the people that were first watching House of the Dragon yeah. when no one else was. No one else from the Fundamentals was into it. Um, we were watching it and we were like, it's good. It's good. We like it. Yeah. And then we're like, how do we get everyone else to watch it? And then... But you were like, how do I get everyone else? else to watch it? And then you yeah. did some shenanigans that got that up off the ground. Yeah, you, yes. I feel like it took you a while to get Julia and, uh, Julia and Kylie to watch it. Or no, Julia was also kind of like, Julia didn't take as much convincing. Kylie, I think, took longer to convince to watch it. It took them a while, but they, they got there. And they're, I'm, they're glad. I'm sure they're glad to be here with us mm-hmm. at this point. We will eventually I'm, drag them in. I'm glad that you managed to... Or you made a point to distinguish the two of them because I know that Julia has gotten sick and tired of being presented as like one existing in the same brain space as Kylie. Except, except they do share a brain a lot of times. Mm-hmm. It's it's rare that they do not share a brain, but that's okay. They are there. The opinions about Targaryens is where they don't share a brain. Is where I would like that's point true. that. One, one day we're gonna get one day we're gonna get them on here, mm-hmm. but. Today we have Musa. We're very excited about it. And Musa, you actually chose to come on for this chapter um, because you really like our, our good boy Jaharis, is my understanding. I have a very complicated understanding of Jaharis. <laughs> mm-hmm. So to give them just a very quick overview of like my background of like understanding uh, mm-hmm. this history and this character, when The World of Ice and Fire came out, I had not... I did not really know anything about like Targaryen history based on like what sprinklings of it we get in the main storyline. My first couple of read-throughs, those were always the parts that I kind of glazed over and like didn't pay that most attention to. So when I started reading The World of Ice and Fire, I started getting to more into that stuff. And the idea of like a large portion or like a majority of the portion of the Targaryen dynasty existing by virtue of the fact that Jaehaerys's long reign happened was something that like I keyed into a lot and I was like okay if it weren't for this this entire like history would not exist in the way that it does because not only did it firmly entrench Targaryens as rulers of Westeros for like the next couple of centuries at least it also me- is also the place where like the seeds of like what ended up becoming the dance of the dragons are first song and mm, i picked yeah. up on all of that stuff yeah. but jaharis's character seemed like there was a lot of untapped like or not untapped potential but like there was a lot that was being left unsaid about him 
and the more I started reading like interviews and videos that George Martin was in and like other podcasts that he had guested on and he would always talk about Jahers as being his favorite uh, Targaryen king and that's the reason why he shares a birthday with him and um, oh he does I didn't know that yeah that's why Jaharis has George Martin's birthday that's like a point that he made <laughs> oh so we him. should have wished George Martin bir- like happy birthday in that episode where we wish, wish Jaharis happy birthday oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> But like, I'm sorry, George. Uh, yeah. But like, that's Bel- happy belated. But like, he would always talk about him in terms that it was like he was the probably the, the best king of the Targaryen dynasty, and like a lot of people kind of like bought that wholesale. Mm-hmm. And then Fire and Blood came out, and suddenly there was a massive reckoning with the fact that Jaehaerys wasn't actually like a very nice. And be kind of like mm-hmm. a jerk in the mildest of terms. Like he was more yes. than just a jerk. But here's like my perspective on that is that I think it actually is a very interesting and compelling character to have someone who is put in this position where they have to be great. And he maybe knows that he's not really that cut out to be that so he pushes himself to be greater and on the way to doing that he starts to try and get there by like pulling back on the potential greatness of others around him Mm. and like oh i like that i like that that a lot lot. i think that that's put a very interesting like a position to take on Jaharis. And that's kind of like how I've interpreted him since then. Um, Because I also think that like, there has to be something that distinguishes Jaharis from uh, Viserys the first, who was just blatantly incompetent and should not have been king. Jaharis, you can argue, had a lot of stuff going for him still, but his fatal flaw is the fact that like, because he knows of his own shortcomings so much so that like he can't deal with that and so he poisons the well of like other people's reputations for the sake of his own it's kind of like where i think that distinguishing factor lies between the two of them because otherwise i agree if it is the case that like jeharis is just um uh, like he, he, all of his best ideas are someone else's ideas and like he took credit for everything else that other people accomplished that like puts him too close in line to what Viserys the first was like and I think this makes mm-hmm. for a far more distinct and compelling character in his own right and in the vein that fire like House of the Dragon managed to elevate Viserys from being like kind of really one note and boring in Fire and Blood uh, I think there is ways that we can talk about Jaharis in the same way as well. That's sort of like the perspective that I wanted to bring to it, which is why I wanted to do this episode in particular. Yeah, definitely. And I think and I think I like what you're saying is and also I think just generally mm-hmm. I think we can all agree Jaharis is a good king. Yep. But he's a good king in like you're saying, which is like he's a good king in this patriarchy. Yeah. He fulfilled his role in the system. He didn't change the system. He yeah. I think he was very much pressured by the system Mm -hmm. 
where he was also controlled by it. Yeah, yeah where uh, the idea of a king is supposed to be the great man incarnate, sort of like idea, and anything less than that is tantamount to the kingdom itself being in ruins, essentially. So if he's yeah. not the greatest, then that means that like the seven kingdoms as a whole are like on tumultuous ground already. Mm-hmm. So that's where the position I think. In, yeah, that goes into Caroline. What you've um, kind of some of the things that you and I have been touching on about like as we see the Targaryen dynasty like continue from the very beginning, things devolve. So, like, in the beginning, mm-hmm. you have something that's closer to a triarchy where, like, yeah, Aegon is the titular head, sure. But, like, kind of everybody knows that, like, Visenya and Rainier and, like, Rainies are running everything. And, like, even it's, like, really obvious on, pay- like, in the story that, like, mm-hmm. Visenya and Rainies are making a bunch of decisions. And, like, mm-hmm. Aegon is just being credited for them. But, like, by the time, even by the time of Jaehaerys, you're starting to get this idea that, like, the king can't rely on his wives. Like, no one can know that the king has anyone advising him in what you're saying, Musa, that, like, no one can know that the king can be anything other than, like, the the only person making decisions, the smartest boy in the room, that if there's any sign mm-hmm. that, like, he's not the one in charge, yeah. then, like, throw up your hands. You might as well. The kingdom's over. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I have an interesting perspective on the, like, the triarchy idea that you were presenting there as well. I think... Um, the way that I conceived of it is that, like, because Aegon supposedly spent most of the year on his progress, like, all the time, it would be, like, the case that, like, I think what his position in, like, that uh, hierarchy was being, like, the PR guy for the dynasty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, and Rhaenys was sort of doing that with regards to the court, but I think Aegon yes. was doing that with regards to making sure, like all of the seven kingdoms knew who they were serving now by virtue of his actual presence going to places and showing up in all his splendor, like holding court in different places and like just being present while uh, Visenya and Rhaenys were handling uh, the building of the capital and like how like Mm -hmm. the establishing of like their control over things from that end. Uh, as well as like establishing yeah. like alliances with other parties as well. So I think that that's mm-hmm. the way that that sort of relationship between the three of them functioned in my mind. I don't know if mm-hmm. like you guys had different conceptions of that as well. That, I mean, that was, yeah, that was pretty much our, our take on it. And listeners, you can't see me and Gretchen nodding furiously while Musa speaks. I don't <laughs> want to keep saying, uh-huh. I don't, I don't want to interrupt the sound. Uh-huh. I don't want to make the whole podcast like five sounds at the same time. But yeah, that, I mean, that's that's kind of, we we felt they were at least equals, yeah. if mm-hmm. not ultimately with Visenya kind of being the one actually ruling stuff yeah. as the smart cookie that lived the longest. Listen, but I don't anyway, want to discount um, the fact that for 10 re- years, Rainies was still around, at least. That is true. That yes. Yeah, no, she did a lot of stuff. She did the Feast and Frolics, you know, the ladies. She did the, and she did the, the Feast and Frolics. Parties. She did actually sit the Iron Throne when mm-hmm. some people were gone. And is the only example we are given of someone actually establishing some kind of precedence. So, like, oh, I don't want to discount yes. that fact. Yeah. So, so anyway, what chapter are we reading today? Oh, yes. Um, today. Let's get to what we're actually talking about. Today, we're talking we're about reading... the first part of A Time of Testing. Yes. 
Um, if you have and a physical book, it's we're starting on page 178 and going through to 187. Uh, the top of the page opposite the beautiful illustration of uh, Jahari's um, threatening Rogar. But the not dragon. threatening him. Just standing in front of his dragon and going, wow, what a nice dragon I have. Um, uh, hey, have, have you seen my nuclear weapon? Let me show it to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so we broke this one into two parts uh, pretty much, pretty cleanly. Um, so let's do our high-level summary. Gretchen, you want to take Ooh. it away? What happens in this this very exciting section of the chapter? Yay! So we start off this section with uh, Jaehaerys is making his grand entrance to King's Landing. Because where we ended with the last chapter was like, um, you know, oh, he's 16 years old. It's his birthday. Now he's king. Um, he's 16. He's now a man. He's an adult. He can make adult decisions. Um, and everyone's waiting to see. So he arrives on Dragonback alone. Um, Alisanne is staying behind on Dragonstone to, uh, I mean, to clearly just to continue preparing the tar- the Targaryen propaganda machine. We'll talk about that. Um, it's framed like, oh no, but people won't like the incest marriage. And I'm like, well, you know. He had, Gretchen, he had to protect her and leave her back on Dragonstone before, he had to make sure it was safe before she came. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think the way that it's presented is that, like, it is blatantly saying that, yeah, the propaganda machine had to be set up first. Yeah. Um, Yes. Which, like, yeah, yeah, and, like, I think it is an interesting point, and I think uh, adapting this into a show, there would be two ways to go about it. One is that, A, she doesn't get left behind is it is part of like the arrival and like shows up and it's the two of them together or B lay some foundation for like the kind of conflict that's going to continue like showing up in their relationship further on when it's very clearly established that this is about gender and that uh, Jaehaerys is incapable of letting go of the idea of himself having the control of the situation of being the one in charge here and so like if to do this in the sense that like Jaehaerys does show up entirely by himself and makes his entrance like alone the way to do that would be to first have the scene where Jaehaerys and as and have that conversation or something or some kind of conflict there I might yeah. be getting ahead of myself because I realize we were still doing the summary, so I'll stop there. It's okay. We'll put a pin in that. Look, okay. this, we'll is, come this back has happened it. with Caroline and I before, where we start with the summary and we're like, wait, we're doing analysis. Oh, no. But wait, the really important <laughs> things, don't worry about it. You're totally fine. Um, and I really, I like what you just said there. This is about gender. That summarizes the entire relationship between Jaehaerys and Allison. Yep. I think. I think yeah. that summarizes that all... the entire history of the Targaryen dynasty. <laughs> George R. R. Martin's thesis of books. This is about gender. About gender. Um, or at least the song of our book. So, um, yeah. after he arrives in Dragonback, making his grand entrance, he goes to see his mom. Um, and what do you know? Right after he goes to see Queen Alyssa, um, he comes out and is like, I have a bunch of decisions I would like to make. But Gretchen, when he goes to see Queen Alyssa, they go into a room and nobody knows what they spoke about when they came out. Her face was red and puffy from tears, okay? Yeah, she was And then she crying. never took and then she never took much part in court life again. She was not on his council never, after that. N- never did a thing. She ever. Was never she part retired. Of she was broken in spirit. What does it say? She was, um, yeah, she was There was no spirit. joy in her. No joy. No joy, None Queen whatsoever. Alyssa. None yeah. at all. <laughs> um 
So yeah, anyway, he makes a bunch of changes, including uh, he changes his whole cabinet. Um, yeah. He uh, fires some he folks. a few people. I mean, he, yeah, but he fires some folks. He, he hires some new folks. He doesn't just change his cabinet. He fires everyone who works at the Red Keep. Yeah. 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 Well, he starts with the he starts with the um, not the, the, what's not to call the cabinet, Gretchen. Now you got me with the wrong word. The what's council. The, small, the council. small council. He makes some changes on yeah. the small council, which are good changes. He fires um, who we have been calling the good Republican Master of Coin, uh, Edwell Keltigar, who liked to tax the peasants. Yeah. Um, it's trickle down economics. He, yeah. He, he fired the trickle down economics guy, and he also yeah. told the Septon who hated incest to like, you know, f off. Um, yeah, Matthews, Matthias, Matthias, yeah, Matthias. However, probably is Matthias. Probably is how you say it. Yep. Um, yeah, and I'm like what Mosa was saying. He he starts with the big positions, and then he kind of goes through the rest of the. He the goes through like, basically the entire like everyone who works in the Red Keep because there might still be holdovers from Makeover's reign. That's like the logic, right? right? Yeah, all the way down to the rat catcher. Yes. Which I'm like... It's like, mm-hmm. given future events, probably a good idea. <laughs> probably yeah. a good idea. Like, yeah. and it and it's smart. We'll talk about this later. He, he does it at a smart time. Mm-hmm. Um, he's so smart, Gretchen. Yeah, he's the smartest. Um, he also cleans out the jail cells, which I thought was really cool. Like, cool of him to be like, you know, mm-hmm. there's a bunch of people in prison. Um, maybe we should, like, make sure that they belong there. <laughs> I'm kind of mad they didn't do this earlier because Seriously. like his regions this have is been in power for years. This is why this is one of the ones that I'm willing to actually give to Jaharis. Yes. Because it only happens when he comes back. When he comes. Mm. That's a good point because that right. could have been changed. That could have been done much earlier. Because like those poor people, they and the, the text acknowledges that they find innocent people in the cells. Yeah. And some people and who were just too, um, you know, had been. They'd gone mad. Yeah. yeah they'd gone mad. They'd been in there too. Okay. Long. So. Um, yeah. Yeah, then, then he decides to meet with Rogar. So then he, yeah, he meets with Rogar. He so, meets so with Rogar, Rogar, and it goes really well. Who would have thought? Rogar's been he, such a dipshit. Yeah. And he, yeah. Seems, and he just, you know, humbles himself. It's great. Yeah, he, he for once in his life, yeah. ate some humble pie. Uh-huh. And, um. He, did, he and, yeah, his punishment is that he has to, um. Be really nice to Queen Alisanne. Say all the nice things about her. He is now a part of the Alisanne propaganda machine um, mm-hmm. to get people to be okay with the incest marriage. And he's got to move in back in with Queen Alyssa. They got to be husband and wife again. He can't go live off in his own in Storm uh, in Storm's End by himself. I'm sure Queen Alyssa is just thrilled. Yeah, I'm sure it's great that. for her. Yeah. <laughs> um, and his brothers get exiled. Um, they, yeah. they they're not sent to the Wall. You know, this is another decision that, like, maybe Jaehaerys is involved in. Like, he doesn't send them to the wall. He's just like, they have to be gone for 10 years. And if, they're, and if they are all very good boys, then after 10 years, then maybe they can come back to Westeros. And there's this lovely little kind of vignette story in the footnote at the end of this section um, that one of the brothers goes to Essos and ends up actually marrying the Archon's daughter, that girl that had blue hair mm-hmm. that they tried to marry Jaehaerys to. Yep. Uh, and she has... Her. She has a daughter, and then he dies in some way, and she and the daughter kind of disappear into the annals of history. Mm-hmm. And I'm so like, I want to, I want to tinfoil hat that and figure out who they could be. I want, like, I'm sure they're no one. I'm sure that I'm I mean, sure that George R. Martin didn't put them in anywhere. But like, who could they be? You know. I mean, I do love those little footnotes here and there where mm-hmm. certain characters just like have a little bit of their like what happened to them 
like mentioned and then it just goes away and it it's it's an easy way to write characters out where you're like okay here's a little bit about what they got up to afterwards just so you know they're not actually in the story anymore mm-hmm. yes yes exactly I want to hear about their adventures, though. I want to know what happened to the blue-haired Archon's daughter. Right? I would like to know if she had a real name. Did she have a name in the previous? I don't think nope. she had a name She's in the previous the Archon's section. Daughter. I would like to know. And then, like, the final comment to just say is that, uh, I, look, I know that, that the Dance of Dragons comes later, but we are basing this podcast around the idea of, like, you having seen the show, um, yes. House of the Dragon. Yes. So I'm going to call it Pulling a Rhaenyra. So whenever a character is like, I can just like visually sh- remind you that we have dragons in power instead of actually using them, then mm-hmm. I'm going to call it pulling a Rhaenyra because that was all Rhaenyra always wanted to do is like, look, we can just remind them we have dragons. We don't actually yep. have to like burn them, but we don't mm-hmm. have to hide them. We can just be like, hey, look, I have a dragon. Dot, dot, dot. Eyeballs emoji. Mm-hmm. What are the implications of that fact? Yeah, eyeballs emoji. <laughs> Fill in the sentence yourself. Um, so with what Jaharis I could do with that, with, yeah. So Jaharis Jaharis does that with Rogar. Yeah, yeah he pulls a he pulls a Rhaenyra and is like, um, I don't need a hostage. Mm-hmm. Um, completely non sequitur. Side note: Would you like to come out into the courtyard and like take a look at my cool dragon? Yeah, isn't Dermothor cool? He's yeah. gotten so big. He's gotten so big. Um, <laughs> whatever implications you want to take from that, Rogar, just you know, just a reminder: I have a dragon, and that's really cool of me. I'm awesome. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's it. <laughs> Hooray. Yeah. That's the section. <laughs> okay. Jaharis has a bunch of meetings. Welcome to being in charge. You have like 10 meetings. I think this yes. is like my ideal version of House of the Dragon. Is like uh, a lot of like people sitting in rooms talking about like the state and also how that relates to their personal relationships with each other because it's feudal politics. So mm-hmm. that is all it is, politics. It is, in fact, uh, it is, in fact, both personal and political yes. at all times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know this. I mean, it not like a lot of stuff stuff happens, but like this is like how you rule the realm yeah. kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, we could get into our analysis uh, officially and start with what was the maester thinking in this section? So what was the maester's bias uh, this time through. Gretchen, what do you think the Maester's bias was? I mean, this is just going to be a persistent bias from here on out. We keep talking about it. Like, he just loves Jaharis. He, like, Gildane, the narrator, the author of this story, just loves Jaharis, thinks he's the yeah, smartest, thinks he's the best. Gildane is George R. R. Martin. <laughs> right. I was about to say, is it, is it Gildane that loves him, or is it George R. R. Martin that loves uh, him? Both. Um, yeah, I was just saying, I mean, like, I like, love like, that, like, go the, ahead. Yeah, so, like, the, the point to make about, like, how this is written is that, like, George Martin understands that, like, in order for a story to be interesting, a characters have to be flawed. And also, he wants to still gush about his fave somehow. So he gets to have his cake and eat it, too, by virtue of the fact that, like, you have uh, this maester talking so highly of this uh, king, while at the same time, the text itself leaves this room for you to read between the lines and understand that this person probably isn't all that they're cracked up to be according to this uh, account mm-hmm. uh, and so like that's like the sort of like I don't want to say it's genius but it's just good writing in that sense I think I, like, it's genius I was I was thinking that just now like mm-hmm. it's a genius way to write this text I think 
I think my favorite part of this section where we see both the the, the Gildane and the George R. R. Martin bias is the section where like Jaharis lands and he's like and he's like like there's this big long description of like what he looks like now. Mm-hmm. The stripling who had flown to Dragonstone was gone, and in his place was a man grown. He was taller than before by several inches, and his chest and arms had filled out. His hair was flowing loose about his shoulders, and a fine golden down covered his, covered his cheeks and chin, where before he had been clean-shaved. <clears throat> and it's this, like, really, like, effusive, like, description of, like, wow, look how manly, and I'm like... You mean two years have passed and he went from, like, a 13-year-old to a 16-year-old? I mean, this is, like, really normal stuff here. Like, this is just a kid growing up. Yeah. Like, Gretchen, he, Congratulations, he, he hit puberty. He got swole, okay? <laughs> he practiced on Dragonstone with his Kingsguard. He got swole. And so, he's hot now. He's hot now. I, it's funny just because, like, you could have this description could be lobbied at, like, any 16-year-old in Westeros. Yeah. Who you hadn't seen for three years. But it's somehow magical because Jaehaerys just, like, magically disappeared and came back a man. And I'm like, time passed. He hit puberty. I mean, isn't like, this exactly... hormones. Isn't this exactly the description that we get of uh, Rob? Uh, like, post-book two, but, like, in yeah. book three? Because, like, Catelyn... Yeah. Like leaves to go to Rilly's camp in book two, and that's the last time she sees Rob. And then when she meets him again at the start of book three, it's been like 10, 11 months or something. And Rob has actually grown out by virtue of the fact that he's been in a war. And like mm-hmm. that feels more believable just because war does actually do that, like physically to a young person in like in like a discernible way. Like people have seen that like actually going through war and like uh, combat can visibly change your appearance just by virtue of the experience itself, especially if you are like still like at a developing age. Yeah. And if you're physically like, you know, they're sword fight, right? They're not shooting things with yeah. guns. So like they have to physically be able to do this. So like the fact that they're, you know, go- simultaneously going through the later stages of puberty and physically working their mom. I mean they are legitimately getting swollen. Yeah. That is actually what's happening. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and but that's a really good that's a really good comparison. That is how she describes Robin. I think it's almost the same thing with like the down on his cheek. Yeah, um, it, it, it actually is like yeah. described as a full beard. Like not just yeah. like a little bit of fuzz. Yeah. Um also I just want for those of you who have a book, um I was just on page one seventy nine. If you turn the page there's this lovely illustration of Jaharis. And it looks nothing like the description. Like and you, like you turn the page and you're like that. That still looks like a baby. Yeah, like, that, that still looks look like, like a, a child. child. You know what he that does, does look, look like, like though? That looks like um, like a slight iteration. The description as well as a slight iteration on like what George Martin looked like as a young adult. That's <laughs> because I've seen a picture oh. of him on Twitter <laughs> where he oh was like twenty or something, and like it matches this description especially like the talk about his hair and like the broadness of the shoulders and all of that oh is this George R. R. Martin's self-insert I always thought his self-insert was Roderick the Reader no his self-insert is technically Sam but like he has a few he's got a few yeah I think you're right He's um, like, if I was king, this is how I would be king. <laughs> but yeah, we've been we've been talking about these. I don't know, Musa, if you've listened to this episode, but there was one where we talked about um, 
that the illustrations are really interesting if we think of them as in-universe illustrations. That these yeah. illustrations are not for us, but they were actually a part of like yeah, yeah. meant to be understood as a part of like of what Gildane is providing. Right. That um, he's finding art sources within yeah, the world. Yeah, that he's like yeah, that like people are being commissioned to like create like basically an illuminated manuscript. Yeah. With like big illustrations of it. Which like works better for some than for others because this one feels slightly at odds. Yeah. With like the description of Jaharis. Mm -hmm. But yeah. um when we get to the next section, there will be the like the beautiful the beautiful faceplate of the wedding. Um, oh. and that works much better as an in-universe illustration than it does well, as the, for me. The, the the later picture in this section too of him with the dragon and Rogar that works really well. Mm -hmm. the that one is really good, and I think yeah. that one would be great, like as like a source of like this is what we want this dragon to look like in the show as well. Yeah. I yeah. liked the way that Wormithor looked in episode ten of uh, House of the Dragon, but but like. This is also supposed to be a younger Wormuthor. He's at the same age as Jaehaerys, this dragon. Mm -hmm. This dragon is also 16 years old in this illustration. Mm. It's an interesting point of comparison. Maybe, yeah. dra maybe dragons age more quickly. They get bigger, faster. They kind of I mean, have they, to. They, they I feel like do. Martin had to... He okay, had so to do that with Danny. Two things. Yeah, yeah. One, he had to do that with Danny for plot reasons. And mm -hmm. uh, two, there is a lot of variance in like how big some dragons get and how quickly they get that big. And it is not consistent at all. So we just kind of have to assume it varies and that there's yeah. there's no like set rules that. for like how fast a dragon can grow. Some there dragons also... hit dragon puberty earlier than others. Some yeah. of them are just, you know, they have early onset puberty. There could also just be a variation in how big they can get, like, genetically. Because, like, yeah. I'm 5'3", some people are 6'5", yeah. you know, some people are 4 foot. Like, it's, it's all different, like, heights of humans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, just, if you wait long enough, you don't just keep getting bigger. <laughs> True. At a certain point, you hit you hit max. <laughs> so, yeah. like, our girl... Um, I mean, that is also, like, one of the explanations for why the later Targaryen dragons were just smaller than, like, the ones uh, early on. So in universe, it does also make sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh, what's Visenya's dragon's name? Why can't I remember? Vagar. Vagar. That's the thing. Our girl Vagar is just. She's just a big girl. Mm -hmm. She's just large. Yeah. You know? Right. Um. Yeah. So I feel like we picked part the bias. Let's get into what we think really happened. Okay. What 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 happened? Well, you... I mean, not a lot, but like. Okay. So so I wanna I wanna say this at the outset, so, Musa, so you know. So, Gretchen and I. We have our own biases coming into this, mm -hmm. and Gretchen and I are always really interested in, in the female characters and l less compelled by the male characters. So, and with Jaharis, particularly to this point in the text, there's like really hasn't been a ton of him, mm -hmm. and the bias is so heavy from the Maester or George R. R. or whatever that he's just the best. He's the best boy, he's so smart, or whatever, whatever. So, we've been kind of questioning that and being like, yeah, sure, okay, whatever. But you were saying before that, like, you think some of these decisions actually were his, and I, I think you probably are right. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to know, like, what, what, what here do you think is J actually like Jaharis is doing? So the way that I like the, the way that I explained earlier, I think, like, if we're talking about the fact that Jaharis did show up alone uh, to King's Landing, and if we go with that version of events, then uh, I think the way that that ended up being the case was. Like, there was some kind of conflict between him and Alessane about this decision to come here specifically uh, without her. 
and how she felt about the fact that she was left behind and left out of this. I think, like, like I said, if we're talking about this as a terms of like a television show, what we want to establish is that like this is the point of conflict that is going to exist within their relationship for the rest of their lives. And like laying the groundwork for that here, I think would be a great opportunity. So what conversation happened? Was there a fight? How did Alison like try to present her view that like if they went together, it would make them look stronger and it would also give the impression that like they are standing by the decision they have already made to be married to each other and like sticking to their guns on that. Uh, and whereas like if Jahers went by himself, it like establishes him as like being the sole determinator of all of these ideas and also that like maybe it might make them look weaker uh, as far as like their resolve on the decision they've already made thus far. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Okay, I love that. And to support that, I was thinking specifically about Anies and a- and the way that Anies, um tried to control the relationship, like the, the progress with Aegon and Reyna. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And how like he didn't want to bring, he didn't want Reyna to bring her dragon on the progress because it would make Aegon look weak. Uh-huh. Um, right. Because he mm-hmm. would not have a dragon. Right. Um, which was a terrible decision. Um, mm-hmm. It was a really bad choice because you should always have a dragon if you're a Targaryen. You should always bring your yeah. dragon to remind people what they're actually submitting to. Yeah. But like, and, I'm th- and I think fi- that, and they got physically trapped. And they got physically yeah. trapped. But I think that what you're saying, Musa, actually reminds me of the kind of decision that Aenys makes. And that makes sense because Jaehaerys is Aenys' son. Like, it makes sense to me that he might have learned some things from his dad. He might be thinking about, like, look, if one of us has to appear, like, it should be me because, like, I'm the yeah. king. And, like, my older brother, Rhaegon, or not Rhaegon. Huh? Aegon. My, <laughs> I just made a portmanteau of Reyna and Aegon. Um, <laughs> because Reyna was the real power in that relationship. Yes. Um, so my older brother, Aegon, where he failed was by establishing himself as the clear power and authority. And so I have to establish myself as the clear power and authority, which means I have to show up with my dragon and I cannot have my wife with her dragon. Yeah, I think, yeah, and it's very clear that he, like the text even goes so far as to say that this Jaehaerys had a complex about not appearing as weak as his father. And I think Mm -hmm. this is an important aspect of his relationship to his own gender as well. And the fact that like, maybe Jaehaerys wouldn't have been so compelled to be as martial as he ended up being if, like, the whatever happened, all the stuff that happened with Aenys had not happened. The fact that, like, everything that happened with Aenys and Maegor happened because Aenys was considered weak martially, and that transition translated into being weak politically, meant that, like, Jaehaerys had to start compensating for that at a very young age. And... Like, his predilections might have been more towards, like, uh, academic or scholarly pursuits if there had not been this pressure to have to perform masculinity on this level where you have to be not only, like, passable at fighting, but you have to be so good that people have to be taking bets on you or whether or not you could have beaten Megor, which, like, sounds ridiculous, even reading that part of that chapter again, because 
Megor was a fucking monster, even in universe. He was trained by Visenya. He was like the would have probably been the best swordsman in the realm during his life. He was a zombie for the last like third of his reign. Um, I but mostly you brought up. So I have two. I have two follow ups. The first follow up is that's that you bring up a really interesting distinction, but that applies to Jaehaerys and his heir Viserys the first. Because Jaehaerys was kind of starting from the bottom, right? Like yeah. his predecessor was like weak and not martial and got de- you know deposed, whatever. Viserys the first inherits all of this power and is not martial and is not concerned about masculinity or whatever, because um, it doesn't have to be because the the Targaryen family is so powerful by the time he, he comes. It's so entrenched, that. yeah. Yeah, it's so entrenched, exactly. So. It's sort of interesting, and I want to keep that in mind going forward as we go go through the rest of this book, of how how when you're not meeting the demands of the patriarchy, the patriarch you then fail in the patriarchy. You know, mm-hmm. like Jaharis succeeds, quote unquote, because he he ticks off those boxes that this society wants him to tick off. So I, I really like that analysis. You also said something else. Oh, so this is my question. Let's say they had a conversation, Jaharis and Allison, about whether or not she should come with him. Mm-hmm. Do you think they made the right choice? Uh, I think that... Okay, so ultimately this is determined on like how you want to present ideas on this show. And ultimately, I think what you want to get across here is that there's a way to interpret it either way. Because that's mm-hmm. what experts like interesting discussion and analysis is like having both views have some validity to them. If it's so clear that Jaharis coming by himself is obviously the wrong decision, then that ultimately just like makes a flatter point in my opinion. Uh, mm-hmm. It's I agree. much more compelling if Jaharis at least has some iota of uh, like some like uh, what's it called? Some ground to stand on. When it comes to yeah. saying that, like, he needs to establish his control as the king solitarily or, like, on his own. And mm-hmm. there is debate about whether or not that should even be necessary, but that there is some ground on saying that, like, look, this kind of patriarchal society that Westeros already is, is not going to be so kind to the idea that, like, this king needs his queen around to fully establish his own power, especially after Megor has like already come and like been the most masculine masculine guy ever. Uh, he had a lot of sex. He was very masculine. Yeah, yeah, the most sex, but yeah. no babies. Um, I think you well, could also make a really interesting that like there would be a really interesting way to navigate the relationship between Alisane and Alyssa. In this environment, because if Alisane is on the side of like, well, I want to go too. We're stronger together. Like we're stronger as a couple. Mm-hmm. Like we could do, we could do the Aegon and the Conqueror thing. But like Aegon showed up with his wives. Like yeah. we can make that grand entrance of like we're united. We're you know we're a united front in the monarchy is like the king and his wife. Yeah. Um, Alyssa's, as we've talked about, as as Caroline and I have talked about, like Alyssa seems to be of the like she's bought into the patriarchy like she's on the like make a window in your prison side of things Mm -hmm. and i can imagine her saying like i can imagine her siding with jaharis especially based on what we see from Alyssa. that Alyssa like takes a step back from court life but like i am 100 percent convinced that she is still 
helping to make decisions, but she is doing it basically from the shadows now. That like she's yeah. bought into the patriarchal notion that like in order for a king to be strong, he he can't be seen to rely on women visibly. So even if he is, it's got to be quiet. It's got to be in the background. No one's got to know what's happening. Um, and mm-hmm. I can imagine Alyssa like advising Alison, like, look, I know you know, kind of what you want, but like, this is how the patriarchy works. This is how we do things. Like, you know, now that your brother is actually king, it was one thing when I was the dowager queen and technically in charge. But like, now that he's in, he's king, I got to take a step back. You got to take a step back. Like, mm-hmm. sure, you can just help him from the shadows. You can sit in his council meetings. You can talk to him and like, give him all of the advice you want, but you can't be seen visibly having power. And it would also make sense of her to do that because we've theorized that she has been spinning the the Alisan Targaryen machine from the very beginning. That like that was the whole point of the wise women was like develop a cadre of women who love Alisan and then send them out into the world to tell everyone how great Alisan is as a part mm-hmm. of Targaryen exceptionalism and like incest is fine. And so mm-hmm. I feel like it would be interesting to also create tension between Alyssa and Alisan here mm-hmm. um, as well. And, like, this would be a part of, like, well, maybe it's a good idea for her not to show up because it it allows for more time for the Targaryen propaganda machine to make incest okay. Yeah. It would be, it would be really interesting, adaptation-wise, if there was, like, a combination of, like, like, if Alyssa was at Dragonstone with them before Jaehaerys leaves, mm-hmm. and there was some kind of conversation with the three of them where, like, like... Musa, like what you're saying, where first Alison and Jaharis kind of butt heads on this. Yeah. And then, then the mother gets involved and says, no, Jaharis. It like picks Jaharis. Yep, yeah. If we're, yeah. If we're going along that same line of thought, then I think what I would then do is also switch it up so that the concept of like, um, yeah, the, uh, the conversation that uh, Jaharis has with Alyssa later is just like move to this scene like where she is at Dragonstone with them mm-hmm. and instead when Jaehaerys shows up in King's Landing and has that conversation with Alyssa that's entirely like a staged thing where mm-hmm. like they mm-hmm. go yes actually this this fits really well with um we had a theory that Alyssa and Alison might have been in secret communications with each other like this whole time mm-hmm. like even when Rogar was was mad at them um so that would kind of fit if Alyssa was just having, you know, secret conversations or like secret meetings ever with her kids. Uh, and then they go back to King's Landing and she has to act like, oh, this is the first time I'm seeing him. Yeah. That would be really interesting. I could And I could see that there's mm-hmm. space for that in the text as it exists now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because I feel like yeah. the fact that she comes out with like a puffy face and crying is like, that just feels real staged. <laughs> That does, you know what? That does feel real stage. Because why would why would she be crying? Otherwise? Right. Like, what's what the, the heck reason? does she have to cry about? Other than like right. I don't know, she's still real sad. That she's just her sad about the incest. Live with her anymore? Like I don't know. Or is yeah, she sad she's about sad. the incest? Like is that it? Like I don't know that. I think she's over it at this point. But but Gretchen, you know what it fits with in earlier chapters? They described Alyssa as what? What was it like? So sad, so beautiful, so tragic, yep. or some such thing. Yep. So the idea that she comes out like you know crying or whatever like fits that image. So it's like I did that really happen? If it did, I would believe more that it was a staged kind of thing, right? That like, she that like she knew what everyone said about her, and that the best way to make it look like she was not involved is to like give in to this kind of like oh I'm just a sad weepy widow or like yeah. former widow who like 
you know, I've lost all of my kids and my first husband died and my second husband is mad at me and I'm just... Yeah, and I'm just... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to give up it, and retire in quiet <laughs> solitude and do nothing for the rest of my life. Def- definitely not have any import <laughs> into this anymore. Um, in terms of whether or not it was the correct idea to send Joe Harris and not Alisan, I think either could have worked. Mm-hmm. I think it was... it's It obviously, in retrospect, worked because he he took power and everything was fine, right? Um but I think it really, it's one of those things that changes based on your point of view. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it worked from the point of view of Jaharis. Yes. Right. But from the point of view of Alison, who over her reign and her life, we will see she deconstructs the patriarchy mm-hmm. with it for herself mm-hmm. over her life. And she questioned, by the end of her life, she's like thoroughly questioned this system. For, it didn't, that didn't work for her because not bringing her was part of delegitimizing her in comparison to Jaharis. Yes. So, it, and it didn't work therefore for future women as well within the royal family um, and within power dynamics. So I think it's a really, like Musa, like you were saying, you can read it so many different ways and that is what makes it like a good mm. point of analysis. Yeah. yeah, it creates also some interesting opportunities for um, Alisanne and Reyna to eventually have some conversations that like we never see them have in the book. Mm. But like if you if we're if we're already kind of creating tension here, that like even this early on, Alison is feeling like the 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 writing is on the wall that she is being delegitimized and not being allowed to have the same position of power as her older brother is. Mm-hmm. Um what an interesting, you know, feeling to have that you might have a person in your immediate family who has those feelings, but maybe even stronger that you could potentially talk to about the experience of being like a like a disempowered, you know, authority figure as a woman in in mm-hmm. Westeros. Like, gee, I wonder who yeah. she could talk to about that. That we like never really get to see Alisanne and Reyna talk to each other. They just don't have a relationship. If the book, from what we know, from what we know, yeah. the book doesn't give us any kind of relationship between the two of them. But I mm. like that what we're building here creates the opportunity for them to have a relationship off screen that is about, like, the bond that happens when women are disempowered mm. and how they would start talking to each other about their experiences. I was gonna point out like there are like a few scenes key like strewn about with J- uh, Saint Andrena like throughout the text but like uh, you're right it's like it's not enough to really get a close idea on like how they felt about these same issues um in fact like a lot of the time it seemed like the way that alisane was working she was like towing the party line very much so as far as the public facing aspect of the dynasty was concerned so how much she would actually be doing that in like a like a public way is kind of unclear. It's like when we're making a show about what really happened, then that leaves a lot of room open for like how she would behave behind closed doors or like if she and Rena would have those conversations like out of the public eye instead of mm-hmm. like where people could record or, it for posterity. You know, you know Rena's so much older than Alice. I think she's like twice her age yeah. or something like that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I wonder if it would be the kind of thing where, like, if we had the whole breadth of their lives, that maybe Alison and Raina don't agree initially. Yep. Because maybe Alison still has, like, faith in the system and faith in Jaharis and all this. And then kind of by the end of her life mm-hmm. realizes, like, oh, my sister was right. Yep. You know, this this is an innate, like, I, like I'm not special. I'm not, like, the special girl who has, like, all the, ex- like, exceptions. Like, I still 
as a Targaryen queen, suffer from the system. And it yeah. is a system that is the problem. Um, I think that could be really interesting to to have her come to terms with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And come to terms with the fact that she was told that. Right. You know, up front. I, I think that Right, really yeah, that she begins her... She begins her life closer to kind of Alyssa's worldview and, like, mm-hmm. ends her life closer to where Reyna is. That, like... Because, because we've talked about that before, that, like, Alyssa and Reyna are kind of, like, the two two visible ways that like women can like the like the two poles of like the relationship between women and the patriarchy and and that it aligns really closely with Rhaenyra and Alicent yeah um, yes in House of the Dragon that like Reyna and Rhaenyra are on the like fuck the patriarchy I have the power to not follow their rules so I'm just not going to and Alyssa and Alicent like don't have the same kind of power within the system and so like the best that they feel like the best that they can do is make a window in their prison Right. Um, and exactly. Alisanne represents an opportunity to see a character kind of grow from like one worldview into another as as her experiences change. And also the fact that like you can see that character being like stuck in between those views for a long time as well and being pulled in either direction because mm-hmm. I think that's yeah. where a lot of her like struggle also exists is like the fact that like there are these glimpses of moments where you can see that like she has the inclination towards like having that transformative power, the ability to actually make real change in the world and how much she actually manages to get that through despite the fact that like everything is set up to disempower her as much as possible anyway is actually kind of poignant as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I can definitely see her at the at the begin earlier times being like, um, you know, right. But like, Reyna, you can't do anything. Like, sure, like the patriarchy sucks, but like, you can't accomplish anything because mm-hmm. you're outside of the system. Whereas, like, mm-hmm. I like if I maintain some connection to it, can maybe accomplish some things yeah. within the system. Um, and yes. then eventually realizes that, like, even that is limited, that the yeah. patriarchy can only let her do so much. So the other thing we have to figure out is how, you know, what decisions did Jaharis make in terms of these council things? And I think, mm-hmm. Gretchen, you seem to express that you think perhaps Alyssa made these decisions. At least some of them <laughs> feel like the kinds of decisions that we have seen Alyssa make in the <clears> past. <throat> um and it's mostly just like I'm suspicious of the timing that like he goes in and talks to his mom and comes out and is like, all right, we got work to do. And I'm like, OK, <laughs> like, what mm-hmm. was that just like a war room meeting that you had with your mom backstage? And um, but like, I don't think he may. I don't think that she we can just des- like necessarily just say she made all of them. But I do think that she mm-hmm. would have been involved in some of the decisions oh. that like because he makes a lot of just like big sweeping oh. changes. I was going to say the ones that happened right away, I tend to think that probably Alyssa made them because he hasn't been at court. He doesn't know these people as well. Well, um, But some of them take a while. Some well, of them take a, a bit. A couple of things that like, I will adjudicate on is that like uh, mm-hmm. one of the positions that he appoints is, who is it? It's um, the Master of Laws, which is he replaces uh, the whoever Lord Tully was with Albin Massey who was one of the people who came to see them on Dragonstone. And That's true. So, yes. like, maybe that was a decision that 
he and Allison came to beforehand. Um, mm-hmm. And like that can be a point of like determining how much like it can even be left ambiguous to the viewer as to whether or not it was his decision or Allison's, and like that sort mm-hmm. of is like, like the way we might want to approach these sorts of ideas about how much of the Harris's actual power comes from his own understanding of politics versus uh, his reinterpretation of like his family members understanding of politics as well. Yep. Mm-hmm. I think this decision fits really neatly in our propaganda machine. Mm-hmm. Like the, the idea mm-hmm. of like, Oh, how convenient lady Lucinda, who's one of the wise women who's been hanging out with Alisanne, like her husband gets fired so they retire and go back to the to the Riverlands. And I wonder what Lady Lucinda's doing. She's probably spreading the word about how mm-hmm. great Alisanne is. And, like, she's one of the ones that gets sent furthest away from the capital. A lot of mm-hmm. the changes that happen are, like, close by. But, like, okay. it would be yeah. really useful to have one, you know, a part of the Targaryen propaganda machine um, that, like, paves the way for this kind of Targaryen exceptionalism that we will talk about, you know, that's in the next section. Um, is to have someone go to the Riverlands. Like, that's far yeah. away from the capital. So, like, sending... Someone sending I, I tend to think that, like, firing Lord Tully is actually about sending Lady Lucinda home. That, like, that was a... Like, that they mm-hmm. go together. That you... It's not just about fire it and replacing the Master of Laws. That it is primarily about getting Lady Lucinda home. Mm-hmm. So but, that she can, like, useful. spread the yeah. propaganda. Yeah. It's also useful to put Massey in that spot because, like Musa said, like he came to see, mm-hmm. he was one of the first to come and see Jaehaerys on Dragonstone, which means he was one of the early lords to be like, yep. you are the legitimate king yep. and I'm down with whatever you're doing. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm, I'm like, part of your, like, faction now. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Very clearly, like, and that can be, like, an interesting character to explore as well. Like, it's having, like, all these people who are flocking to Jaehaerys, expecting him to live up to this idea of the, mm-hmm. like, king and how he might want to, like, tackle that as well. The other thing of interest here is uh, the first time that someone who is not from House Valerian becomes the master of ships because... Yeah! What's his name? Uh, who's the Valerian? It's Redwine. Manfred. No, 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 no. So, like, so da- the the hand of the king is Damon. Yeah, so Damon Valerian is yeah. named hand of the king, and like that's why they need to be removed from the position of master of ships as well, mm-hmm. because you cannot mm-hmm. have so much power concentrated in one house with multiple council positions. Which yep. mm-hmm. would that be a point of conflict with House Valerian in this situation? And would Alyssa mm-hmm. have mediated that decision? By putting her weight behind the idea of replacing the Master of Ships with a different, like, house. I don't know how large. I don't know how large House Valarian is at this point, and that would be a thing that we would need. Well, that's the thing is that they they've had the admiralty since the conquest. Is the way Mm -hmm. they're phrasing this? So they've already had the Royal Navy under their control. That's what I'm, that would be my question. Like logistically, like in terms of the master of ships controls the royal navy, but whose ships are those? Those, those aren't are, House Targaryen so ships. Those are those House are Valerian, Valerian ships. ships aren't yes, they? they are. So having a non-Valerian command, yeah. the Valerian fleet is you know it is a big deal. I imagine the Valerians are appeased because Damon Valerian is hand, mm-hmm. and I I 
do think Alyssa probably would have been pivotal. Yeah. Yeah. But like any, my position would have been like, would there be conflict because any house would want more power rather than less. So maybe someone was pushing Mm -hmm. for there to be two Valerians on the small council Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. how much power that would actually give them. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like one of the, what I expected to be a really controversial decision, um, but the text doesn't treat it like a controversial decision, is replacing the Master of Coin with a non-Westerosi. Like, yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, I, I just have to say, I like Rego Draz. He seems cool. Like, mm-hmm. everything I've read about him so far seems pretty cool. I like Rego Draz. Um, Caroline, you and I will note... Uh, Notice how foreign men aren't spooky scary. I, does he become spooky scary? No, though? he doesn't. I, I don't. Remember. Like, I mean, maybe okay. eventually, but at the start, There's, it's not like, it's how not dare he you becomes, bring in a spooky scary foreigner to be in charge of our money? It's That's not that true. he becomes spooky scary. It's that, like, the way that it's presented is that he's very quirky, the way that they write about him. And, like... The interesting thing is that there's a lot of parallels between Rico Draz and Illyrio Mopatis in, like, the main story. Mm. And Illyrio Mopatis mm. is written to be kind of creepy as fuck if you actually go back yeah. to Tyrion's chapters and dance. And, like, mm. that's really, like, interesting to me is that, like, yeah, he's presented as non-threatening in a personal sense because he's fat right. and fat people can't be threatening. Mm-hmm. And um, Welcome to Westeros. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that is one of the yeah. things that I was going to talk about later is, like, I mean, Martin's fat shaming is really upsetting to read. That's like the, the, I'm, yeah. I honestly, like, have a much more nuanced position on that just because I think the way that Martin writes about fat people in the main series is so much more nuanced. So I'm willing to see mm-hmm. the way that it's written in Fire and Blood as being about, like, giving point of view to this in-world like bigotry mm-hmm. rather than like the author's own like unprocessed bigotry towards fat people, which is mm-hmm. like would be like kind of yeah. weird based on like how much he kind of like gives depth to his fat characters in the main story itself. Um, it's, yeah, no, I think I think part of it what I what I always found interesting is that I mean it only comes up with a handful of characters in a song of ice and fire proper. Um but it it is almost kind of like the, because the people in Westeros are are fat phobic, yeah. uh, they do kind of in a similar way with Tyrion. They kind of um, underestimate the abilities of those people, right. and they're they're like, oh well, you know, like like Sam for example. Like everyone underestimates Sam when Sam does all this like awesome stuff. That's a great exploration of it. Um, there's the guy from White Harbor that Wyman does the Manderley, guys. Yeah. No, no one suspects Wyman Manderley. You know, like he's he's just Wyman Manderly. Like I he's got to be carried around, whatever. Meanwhile, he's doing all these schemes, and he ate your sons. You know, yeah. like there's it's and it's it's a quite brilliant, I think, commentary on that. What? Um, yeah, and that's yeah. entirely missing in Fire and Blood. Like pretty much all of the fat characters that we interact that we have interacted with so far, like their body size is actually used to make them out to be like disgusting. Like, there's no nuance. Yeah. It's literally just a way to be like, this is why everyone, you know, not only is, you know, Septon Matthias like an anti-incest, he's also fat and gross and has to ride in a, you know, ride in a carriage because he can't ride a horse. And I'm like, why do we need to know this? Who cares? I mean, like, right, it's, I it's think it's just same, supposed it's to be the, the case like that, like, 
that like uh, Gildane is fatphobic and like has that uh, bigotry like as an author. Yeah, there is a question of like how much do we need the in-universe author of this text to have these bigotries and does it really add anything to the writing uh, of the history itself? Uh, I would also like major that's a major question for fire and blood is how much do we how much do like okay i get it your point of view character is bigoted in lots of ways at what point in time is it no longer useful to the text and like the way that i would position this is that the story like just because there is a tendency for reader perception and audience perception to imagine characters as a default, which is not fat. Uh, mm. Being able to point out that characters are fat, I think is kind of necessary and important, even in like texts like this, which are not like narrative stories. And um, I mean, it's one of the things that I, I think was actually a very like contentious idea when House of the Dragon was airing was that they the fact that Emma Darcy is uh like relatively thin is something that people were like criticizing the show for because Rhaenyra is described as having been like kind of fat and that is a point of like well couldn't you have gotten an actor who is fat and have this character be just as compelling as they are and therefore also be providing great representation of like nuanced fat people in a drama instead of just treating them as like the comic relief in your show. Yeah, I remember reading that. That was criticism at the time. I I wonder, I guess my question about Fire and Blood itself is do we even trust that this is what these people looked like? Or is it... Trust it it just because like, you know... Why I don't think that like the these characters being fat says anything about their character in and of themselves. So I'm willing to believe that they were fat, but I'm also willing to believe that that them being described as fat as being bad is like obviously not meant to be like I'm not supposed to take that to heart. Uh, as I, a right. I well I, I, I there are a couple things I want to say. One I I think the thing that bothers me the most about this being included as a bias is because it feels very much like it is included as a bias because Martin expects it to be a bias and not because it has mm-hmm. any actual world building basis. Mm-hmm. Um, that like I we mean- live in a fat, we live in a fat phobic society. Like, mm-hmm. and so the assumption, like to me, it reads like the assumption is like, well, of course this society would be fat phobic. Our society is fat phobic. And I'm like, right. But like, it doesn't actually make sense. Like in a like, one, you haven't done the work to try and explain to me why this society would be fatphobic. Two, it actually doesn't make any sense if you understand anything about societies that function like this historically. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, right. if, you, if you understand, points. if you understand medieval feudalism, like, which is clearly what he's drawing on. He's, tr- he's creating this kind of medieval-esque drawing on, like, the tenets of what he assumes to be historically accurate about a medieval society. But, like, mm-hmm. fatphobia is... N- 
not a part of a medieval society. It would actually be the opposite from what we understand of a lot of medieval societies, like especially medieval Europe. Like this was a time period where like having excess body fat was a sign of wealth. It was a sign of privilege. And so a fat person would not be treated as like gross and disgusting. It probably would have been a sign that like they have the luxury to not work. They have access to a lot of food and is a sign that like they are actually of like the wealthy social class. We should actually be seeing a lot more characters who are like lords and ladies and part of the ruling family who are what our society would consider fat but we're actually just like signs of like a really well-fed diet when you're not doing a lot of work outside yeah. like and i there's there's an interesting point to this that i it was and that you, you I, I, I love this conversation i hadn't really thought deeply about this in a song with and fire yet there's a bit in um game a, a game of thrones the book um where when catelyn interacts with lysa and Catelyn, from her point of view, is so judgmental, so judgmental of Lysa's weight. She's it's like the first thing she comments about it when she sees her. Mm-hmm. And and I remember and I think there's also stuff in Sansa's chapter about maintaining a figure or something along those lines. Yep. And it is very modern mm-hmm. dialogue. Yeah. Yep. And it uh, was and I, it did always kind of strike me as as odd there's because because it also makes where... no sense in that in that context because like. What happens to Rhaenyra in the books is, like, she's a woman who, like, has a bunch of babies. Yeah. And, like, her Five body children, changes. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's what normally happens to, like, most women who get pregnant and have babies end up being larger afterwards. They have, they carry yeah. more body fat. Like, it does, not across the board, but that is on the, yeah. like, that is closer to normal to, to have what happens to Rhaenyra in the books be, like, what normally happens when you have a lot of children is your body changes because your hormones change. Like, yeah. Alicent being, think, like, perfectly willowy thin after having four kids is, like, or five is actually unusual, but it's treated like the ideal in a society where, like, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. It's it, it's also, so I'm trying to think of the characters that are of different sizes and, like, for so a lot for of women, the Yeah, so a yeah. lot of the fat phobia that exists in the mainline series of A Song of the Fire is towards male characters. And it's basically meant as a way to disparage the fact that they cannot perform masculinity in the way that their society expects them to. Uh, that makes it's sense. the most clear sense. with yeah. Sam because mm-hmm. his relationship with his father is like the very easy through line to follow where his father was abusive towards him because he wasn't masculine, because he was fat. And those things kind of coalesced into being the same thing. And the fact that like Sam wasn't martial and wasn't like masculine in the way that Randall wanted him to be translated into even more abuse and mm-hmm. all of that the other ones is like um Byman Manderley is one of them where he points out that like people underestimate him because he think that they can he cannot perform masculinity to the level that society expects him to and therefore he cannot be a, conceived of as a threat by a lot of them um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. that like there's a lot of points where uh, people are even surprised that a fat person can be very light on their feet as they end up being. Uh, mm-hmm. George loses that uh, what, that phrase, uh, a fat person being light on their feet, uh, like a few times throughout the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's two female characters that are, I think, as far as I'm remembering, described as being anywhere close to fat. One is Jenna Lannister. And I don't think anyone disparages the fact that she is a heavier woman at all. It's the fact that Jamie brings it up is because he's talking about his aunt in his own mind. He's not really saying anything about her weight disparagingly. 
but and like nobody actually questions her authority or says that there's anything wrong with the fact that she's sitting in on the council meeting or yeah. that she has like a say in the siege that is going on at all. So th- yeah. like th- it's not held to the same level as like the way that fat men are treated. The only other female character that I can think of that's even close to being described as fat is Miranda Royce. And she's not described as fat. She's described as fleshy and buxom. Uh, so I think the way that Martin is writing about fat phobia is that it is also very gender focused where the fatness of a lot of women is seen as a sign of privilege and wealth and a sign of like, this is the easygoing life that these uh, highborn women lead versus where martial men are supposed to be very like uh, performing masculinity in a very specific set of behaviors and being fat is seen as like a demonstration of the fact that you're not doing that. So that's yeah. where I think I it think falls. I, I think that's, yeah, I, I, li- I like that analysis because that is, like Gretchen, you were saying, like he hasn't, he didn't lay the groundwork to justify that kind of fat, like fat phobia, like we have it. Because mm-hmm. um, like we have fat phobia for lots of reasons in Western society, like supermodels, for example, and the standards of beauty and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But they don't have that. But like the fact that the, performative masculinity aspect would require you to be a strong swordsman would be like you know not being a strong swordsman and being i do uh, think that that makes sense on the male side i do think that he is inconsistent in applying it to women because 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 i think think rhaenyra gets a lot of shit for like is like oh she's Mm -hmm. not beautiful anymore because she's fat but and like um cersei's terrified of gaining weight that's true like in a way that signals that like well, if she were to gain weight, she would be less beautiful. So is there, yeah. he is right. associating, like, at least with female characters that, like, fatness is a sign that, like, they're not beautiful anymore. And that's the part where, like, I don't think that fits with what you're saying. I think that's saying, an interesting, so. yeah. It's it's different for characters that are introduced being fat versus characters that are, like, transitioning towards fatness, which is where the Cersei thing, I think, falls in, and also where the Rhaenyra thing falls in, is and that, Lysa. like, they became Lysa. fat later on, versus the character shows up on page for the first time, and that's just how they're introduced. But then we have things like, well, I don't know where, how to square Fat Walda in this, because that, that's what I was just thinking, we, we all forgot about Fat Walda. Yeah. Uh, she's literally called Fat Walda. Yeah. Right. Right, right which you means know. that, like, fat is an appellation that can be applied to people as a like and whether or not that's affectionate or derogatory like at least the society mm-hmm. have some sense mm-hmm. that like fatness is a thing that you and that you can apply that to someone as a label in the same way that you call someone like the blackfish or like yeah. poxy jane yeah. or like whatever like that it's a it can be like a name that you call someone which means they have some conception right. of it yeah. that is and we don't yeah. we don't have enough like characterization of her i don't know to i mean i think that was just more I, I mean she's a side character to a side character right so right her hers was just more to be a joke that Bruce bolton you know pick was going to get the his wife's weight in silver for the marriage or something like that yeah so we picked right the, so yeah it, her fatness is meant to be is like primarily about a joke about how much yeah. how big of a dowry that he gets right um, and yeah so i mean it's not I, I guess my overall question is when it comes to fire and blood yeah we're 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 not in these characters' heads. Like in a song of ice and fire, we get some really great exploration of this. Like particularly mm-hmm. with Sam Tarley, I think in an excellent way that gives me a lot of faith that George R. R. Martin is doing this on purpose for for a reason. Right. right? 
in fi- you know, Fire and Blood is, is a history, and as far as I can tell so far, all of the characters in the history texts that are described as being overweight are bad. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, Septon Matthias, bad. Mm-hmm. Rhaenyra, bad. Septon I don't, we'd have to... Septon Moon, bad. And so I, so I begin to wonder, like, yeah. is this true that they... Or are they adding this? Or what about other people? What about the other people on the council? Is there no one else on the council who is overweight? Are they all perfectly muscular and strong and, and all this stuff? Like, you know, we don't get descriptions of everyone else in this way. Yeah. And is that because they aren't bad? And is that a bias of the of the lens? Is that a bias of Martin? Is that <laughs> useful? I don't know. Right. You know? Yeah, there are there are moments where I feel like Martin, where you're right, Musa, where like I can tell that Martin is questioning, at least, um, primarily he questions the kinds of fat phobia that are applied to men under patriarchy and the way that yeah. that body standard works for them, which makes sense. He's a man, and he's a man who, like, according to our society, would be considered fat. Like he is probably speaking from his own experiences, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's valid and really interesting to like get insight into the experience of a man in a patriarchal society who, like, doesn't conform to, like, what society says, you know, the kind of athletic masculinity should look like. I think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that there are ways in which reproducing a fat phobic, that he did not recognize the implications of reproducing, like, a society-wide fat phobia and is, in fact, just importing the fat phobia that he experiences and sees in our society um and is reproducing that in a way that like he questions in some ways and it is in the areas where he doesn't question it that like i get really uncomfortable with the fact that it just feels like he's just reproducing yeah a bias that we live with without questioning it um and that like that that's kind of where i'm pointing at is like the areas where he doesn't question the fat phobia feel end up just feeling like okay he's just reproducing our own bias in his works and like how useful or interesting is that to like like I can imagine people picking up this book and going like okay I live in if like even in a fantasy world I cannot escape the fact that like all of this whole society believes my body is wrong and that I'm gross yeah. and probably evil for having it yeah um I mean is it useful to the extent that we're having this conversation about it like like in fire and blood it's the pattern is so apparent mm-hmm. that we picked it out pretty much immediately yep. yeah you know, I wonder, I mean, I, I don't know how much more useful it can, I don't know what kind of critique you can have. You can't have a lot of critique in Fire and Blood because it is, like, mm-hmm. the, the the value of it is in the in the reader's reaction. Yeah. Right. Um, I think the hard part is kind of what Martin encounters a lot, which is that we read narratives at face value for the most part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And he's writing, you know, in point of view bias. But, like, when you first read mm-hmm. a story, if you're not thinking that hard about it, you're believing what the narrator's telling you. Yeah. And it's brilliant when you sit and analyze it, but will most people? Yeah. Or does it ju- does it just reinforce that bias, that bigotry? I mean, the expectation right. I think yeah. is that if you're buying the supplementary fake history book to a very long, like, uh, fantasy series, that it itself is also like very thick in terms of like meaning and analysis and like the depth of theme. That like that you should be looking deeper into the text but like again that doesn't necessarily yeah, mean that a lot of people point. will do that mm-hmm. i think that's a good point though i think yeah. I, I, you know i don't i don't like underestimating audiences either mm-hmm. yeah you know i want i want to believe that the audience is going to really engage with something and, and a lot of people do and you get a lot of 
really good analysis out of it like we've just been talking about for the past 20 minutes or so, so. like i hadn't ever thought about this aspect mm-hmm. but anyway <laughs> um do we want to do we want to do like okay so i feel like we should wrap up i really want to talk about that conversation between Jaharis and Drogar. Yeah. because there's some sure. really interesting things in here um so Before, this will kind of this will kind of talk about kind of one what sentence happen, that i wanted to say themes yeah, this one sentence that I really want to say before I let this conversation move to the Rigo, uh, the Rogar part. Uh, I definitely think the aspect of him not wanting to get Lyman Lannister to replace the previous Master of Coin is entirely because he is like afraid of the fact that that guy is on Reyna's like side of this whole like oh, succession that's, that's really so, interesting. I just wanted to put that out there. So that, okay, yeah. now Ooh, I like that. I really like that. That like he didn't want to put any Reyna supporters mm-hmm. on the council because mm-hmm. she's his biggest threat. She, yeah. is. she is his biggest threat. She's his biggest threat. Oh, oh I want her to threaten me. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> um, anyway, Moose, oh, that's a really good thought. I like. I really like. Yeah. That. Um, okay, so all right, so let's talk about Rogar. Yeah, let's talk Stretching. about Rogar. Let's talk about Rogar. Um, so the first thing that I wanted to point out is this is the first time that we have seen words are wind yeah. in Fire oh. and Blood. It's a phrase that shows up a lot. If you've read A Song of Ice and Fire, words are wind is kind of everywhere. This is the first time it fact, shows up in Fire and Blood. Fun fact, I used that phrase in a closing argument to a jury. Oh. And I was trying to say somebody was lying on the stand. I'm like, I'm like, words are wind. She can get up there and say whatever shit she wants. Nice. And they believed me. Woo. And this is anyway, apparently see. a favorite saying of Jaharis. Because he like this is the first time he says it, but it will not be the last time that we see, that we see Jaharis specifically using this phrase. Ooh, uh, interesting. <laughs> um, oh. and like, so there are a couple things about that. There's like one, Jaharis is very much about the power of words. Yeah, kind of Musa. Mm. We, we were talking, but we touched on that earlier. That like Jaharis represents a kind of like, how about if we solve problems with words? So it's interesting that like Jaharis, the the like the king who wants to use words most of the time, is also given this phrase "words are wind," which feels like it's a contradiction to have like yeah. the king who's like, "Let's solve things with words," also be like, "Words are wind." Yeah, I mean, like um, the way yeah, that but- I would like present that is that like the context in which he says that in this situation is the fact that like words without like successful action are wind and like yes. his point is that like that's ultimately less catchy. yeah that's it's, less it's less catchy but also ultimately <laughs> what he's trying to tell rogar is that like hey the fact that you failed every step of the way and everything you tried to do means that like there's it's very easy for me to forgive you here so like take this lifeline <laughs> right now right Right, I'm giving you the opportunity. You yeah. have you have thus far failed at treason like five times, yeah. um, and just because you said treasonous things, you didn't actually do anything. So like, yeah, I like that. I'm I'm tossing you a life preserver to get you out of this. You didn't actually do a treason. You just wanted to do a treason and tried to do a treason multiple times. I just love that idea. It's like like listen, you're you're fucked up so bad so many times. I'm really not worried about it. You know, you're good. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you're fine. I am not worried about you like because... actually developing like a successful treasonous, you know, coup against me. That's the that's the really interesting thing, is that like the fact that he failed on each successive level means that like 
Harris's position was secure enough on all other fronts that mm-hmm. it basically means that like he had legitimate reason to feel like secure in this conversation with Rogar. Uh, the fact that like in Old Town, when Rogar tried to head his brothers there to get um, area or the real area, yes. uh, so to speak, Rhea. away from there and like, yeah, and they just like kind of like shut everything down and like uh, imprison them. The fact that like he couldn't convince anyone else on the council to go along with this plan and in fact they all turned against him the moment that Alyssa told him to fuck off. Um, yes. Uh, the fact that he couldn't actually do anything about uh, um, what else was it? Uh, he tried to send. He tried to send someone to seduce the king. He was the one who who like yeah, supposedly yeah, yeah. is behind sending Corian yeah. Wild to seduce. And that didn't work. Yeah, you suggested placing her. Yeah, yeah. You said yep. You know yep, what yep. would make? You know what would be really fun in like an adaptation if Cor- if that whole thing with Corian Wild did happen and she was sent, but like when she got there, she just like loved Jahir's and Allison so much she just like told them about it and they knew. Yeah. Like, if, if he was looking at this guy and be like, wow, you tried to get me, like, seduced with some lady. Like, I'm really not concerned about your I mean, look, Jahara says, I know what you did and what you said and what you planned. I think that yeah. there's room in those words for him to know about Corianne Wilde. Yeah. To be like, I know you tried to send a lady to seduce me. That didn't work either. <laughs> he must have been like, this dumb dumb. Like, come look at my dragon real quick. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So, that was the other thing I wanted to talk about is symbols of power. This is a theme that's been running throughout. So, like, mm. um, that scene also fits really well with Jaharis's arrival. Because when Jaharis arrives in the city, it, like, goes out of its way to say, like, he wasn't wearing fancy clothes. Like, he's dressed in riding leathers. But mm. he is openly displaying Blackfire. Yeah. And he's riding Vermithor. Because yeah. the real symbols of power are not, like, fancy clothes. The real yeah. symbols of power under Targaryens are, like, I got a really cool sword that's better than all of the other swords. And also, I have a flying weapon of mass destru- destruction. Destru- Those yeah. are the it's things fire, you should it's be... It's fire and blood. Yeah, these are the things yeah. you should be afraid of are my sword and my dragon. Like, yeah. I don't right, have to look and fancy. And that's a really interesting juxtaposition to the Golden Wedding. Where, like, the yes. Golden Wedding was yeah. all about Rogar and Alyssa, like... In these fancy clothes, beautiful raiment, because that's the only symbol of power they had access to. Was like, look how wealthy I am, mm-hmm. and look at my like upper class. You know, I look like an upper class powerful person because of my clothes and my jewels, and and like all that Jaharis has to do is like, no, like the real power <laughs> is like my sword and my dragon, and so he can yeah. just show up, and that's the same thing he's doing with Rogar in that scene where he's like. Oh, by the way, why don't you come check out my dragon? Let's go hang out like, in the courtyard and watch my dragon eat something. Like, specifically yeah. watch my dragon eat something. It's a really interesting point that, like, um, what happens here is that he just, like, explains to Rogar that there's absolutely no reason for him to actually take any hostages or, like, uh, have any sort of assurances from Rogar and like the ultimate idea is that I can just fucking kill you at any time (laughs) and there's literally nothing you can do about it so why not just accept the fact that I am in charge and you are not and in thrifts in like in uh, recognition of that fact I will then allow you to keep all of your like 
titles and wealth and property and everything completely intact with absolutely no punishment whatsoever. And you will also just get your wife back because I can do that, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a great line on page 185 yeah. where um, Jaharis is talking to Rogar and he's like, um, you know, he's like showing him his dragon and yeah. he's like, look at how big my dragon is. And he's like, keep your nieces and nephews. Why would I need hostages? I have your word and that is all I require. But Grandmaster Benefer heard the words he did not speak. Every man and maid and child in the Stormlands is my hostage whilst I ride him. Uh, I would scratch out Stormlands and put Westeros. Because that's the implication here. If you accept that it's true of the Stormlands, it is literally true of Westeros. Every single person is hostage to the Targaryens. I mean, that's the thing is that they have dragons. That is the thing. Ultimately, the thing that ultimately demolishes the Targaryen dynasty in the end is when one of them actually takes this to its logical extreme and being like. I'm just going to burn this dude alive because I can fucking do that because I'm the king. And that's the point where everyone's like, okay, fuck you. And they rise yeah. up against them. But they don't have dragons at that point. Yeah, right? but even... They're just like, they devolve into a normal Even Megor's tyranny only lasted as long as people were willing to, like, cowed out to the fact that he was doing violence on an extreme level. There was a tipping point where everyone was like, okay, fuck you. If there is absolutely no safety for us at all, then we might as well rebel against you. And that's why Megor was ultimately overthrown as well. There's only so far you can go with the threat of violence Mm -hmm. as far as these things go. And Jaehaerys actually does understand that. Mm-hmm. Is that like yes? Oh, I think so very much. He's very good at balancing that. Absolutely, yeah. right, right. That's I mean, it's it's the Rhaenyra pathway, right? Of like, like actually enacting the violence against the people is a surefire way for them to resist to rebel against you. Right. Um, not reminding the people that you have more power than they do is a surefire way for them to rebelling against you. Like either way is the path to rebellion, either because they perceive you as weak and therefore able to be toppled or because they resent you so much for how much violence they're enacting that exactly as you said, Musa, their response is like, look, if I'm going to get murdered, I might as well get murdered trying to free myself. Yeah. That like mm-hmm. the like knife edge that the Targaryen dynasty has to walk is like, Remind the people that we have the power to kill them, but don't actually kill them too much. And also maybe don't remind them too much because then they'll get upset. So like, yeah. it's this like really tricky needle yeah. they have to thread where they like remind people that they have power, but not too much. And they don't actually use it too much, but they just have yeah. to occasionally the power do has to like just this, be... which is like, you know, look at my cool dragon and how big he is. Yeah, the and power just, has like, to be a display of itself without the violence that is associated with it. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. right. And that was why in the show, House of the Dragon, Rhaenyra was like always the smartest person in the room because she was always the one advocating for like, look, we can just, you know, we don't like we can send a letter to the like the free cities, but like I can take the letter on my dragon and that's all I have to do is just show up with my dragon and mm-hmm. hand him a letter and be like, maybe don't yeah. try and, and the, fight us because I have the a dragon. Only, <laughs> the only time that doesn't work is if the other side also has a dragon. Yes. And they yep. have a bigger dragon than your dragon. Yeah, yeah. I, said, I can't remember if I said this on when when I came on to Unabashed Book Snobbery if it, or if I put it in my article. I know I put it in my article because I wrote an article about the first half of the season that like the only threat to a Targaryen with a dragon is another Targaryen with a dragon. 
Like, yeah. that's the mm-hmm. only person who, like, can threaten a Targaryen with a dragon is another Targaryen <laughs> with a dragon. And especially if their dragon is bigger. Yeah. Or, or you can't forget, Gretchen, a really wily pirate who has many cro- giant crossbow bolts at perfect aim. Right, right. That, that mm-hmm. also can be that, a threat to a Targaryen with, with, who has two dragons. He's got two dragons. Especially <laughs> if the Targaryen with the two dragons just, like, forgets that the fleet exists. You know? Just forgets the fleet was there. Kind of forgot the fleet was there. Forgot the fleet was there. And remember the bad cannot possibly bad see them from the vantage point she has, despite the fact that they would just be in front of her. Because so she just forgot. She kind of forgot, and they were the reason, they were underneath her. The reason it was, why you know, like, it is still stupid to this day is because they were hidden, quote unquote. And what hidden in this means is that they were off screen, and they stopped being <laughs> off screen, and therefore now they are no longer hidden. Yeah, Danny's exactly. vision only extends so far as the camera screen. Yeah, right. She was watching the show. Oh, she was watching the show. Watching the show. That's why she couldn't see. Oh, she was watching. She forgot about them because she was watching yeah. the show, of course. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I want to wrap up that final point back to one of our ongoing themes, Caroline, which is the monarchy is bad. Like this is another is really yes. powerful moment where, like, one, I want to be like, oh, Benefer, you're like this close. You're like this close to fully <laughs> understanding. Like, mm. Mm. that like. All of Westeros is held hostage to the Targaryen power. And, like, that's a bad thing. And, like, we as the readers are meant to read that and be like, oh, shit, yeah, all of this applies to all of Westeros. And this is, like, monarchy is bad, okay? Like, no one, and this is also why I said on Unabashed Book Snobbery, why, like, consent, that it was in the, it was in the, um, we were talking about the relationship between Rhaenyra and Kristen Cole, that, like, yeah. consent yeah. is not possible when one someone has a dragon and the other one doesn't, because there is the constant threat of violence, um, and that mm-hmm. is just true of Westeros. Like there is a constant background threat of violence when your ruling class has dragons. Like everyone is would that, know. Like if we fuck up, they could just burn our shit. It's is that it's a tacit acceptance of... of Targaryen incest? <laughs> if hmm. the only equal relationships can be between dragon riders. <laughs> My girlfriend and I actually yeah. talked about that. We were like the only yeah. possible like actual like relationships where like sexual consent is like actually free and in Westeros would be between two Targaryens, two but people then, with a dragon. But then what consent happens? Consent is also just so complicated in the patriarchy, right? Because like yeah. there's so there's so so many layers of like yeah. how can you you can't you can't say no as a woman in this patriarchy you can't say no to a marriage yeah. uh-huh. for the most part. You can't say no to when your husband wants to have sex. I mean, the concept of consent within this patriarchy yeah. is just crazy. Yeah. It doesn't but, exist. But in terms yeah. of what you're talking about, yeah, in terms of what you're talking about with um the dragons, it's like the most advanced game of chicken <laughs> at any given time, right? Uh-huh. It's like it's like, are you going to rebel? I have a dragon. I could, I, I could. Uh, uh, am I going to burn? Am I going to burn? Am I going to burn old town? Uh, uh. Am I going to? Uh, no, I didn't. I just I showed you my dragon. But what about what if I burn up? Oh, what if I eat you? No, okay. What? Mm-hmm. The whole time, the entire Targaryen rage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just back and forth on that. Right, and I don't... and then and then like Musa said, when they actually do it, like Magor, um, and the the Mad King, uh, people don't react very well. Mm-mm. Right, because ter- <laughs> turns out like people don't eaten. actually like having actual violence done to them. <laughs> it turns out weird, weird, huh? so weird. It doesn't make sense. Um, but yeah, I just, I just really loved reading that moment of being like, oh yeah, this is, you know, another one of those nuggets that Martin just throws in that like, look, as much as I find the Targaryen characters really compelling, you know, as we have said before, ultimately I'm like, and this whole dynasty should not exist. 
This patriarchy is yeah. about this. All of this is bad. Ultimately, this is bad for people. It's bad for everybody. And like, we shouldn't have it. M- monarchy, I mean, monarchy is bad. I don't like, yeah, I mean, I, the problem I have with a lot of like Targaryen stands in this fandom is that like people don't tend to like get that the point of Daenerys' story of like abolishing slavery is like abolishing the idea of like masters altogether and that should extend to her own right to rule as well on some level like the reason why Daenerys wants to rule is because she wants to create something better than what exists right now uh she has a whole thing about like why do the gods make kings and queens if not to protect those who can't protect themselves and like if not to like give them more than what they have uh but like there should be some kind of reckoning with the idea that, like, should she have, like, an innate, like, right to rule just because she has power? Uh, mm-hmm. Like, could she... Yeah, it is. Book, Book Daenerys hasn't gotten better. there yet. Right. Book Daenerys yeah. is 14 and hasn't gotten there yet. But, yeah, that's... I mean, it's... it's, I, And I love Daenerys. And I, I I consider myself a Targaryen stan, but not in, like, a blind way. I just like shiny dragons. Um, uh, But she she's going to have to reconcile with that that she's like she's trying to be quote-unquote a good person and like be helpful while also embracing this role that is not good yeah it is part of a system that is not good like we were talking about with jaharis at the very beginning like jaharis is a good king but he doesn't break the system and the system is not good yeah so you can't how are you a good ruler in a system that is innately oppressive yeah right like yeah yeah, like that journey that we're saying alisan is going to have is like sure like working within the system to fix it can only take you so far like yeah because like which is a good thing the interesting point to make uh in house of the dragon episode one uh there's this line that viserys has about how things have gotten worse in King's Landing since his grandmother died. And his grandmother is Alessane. And it is an interesting point of note that, like, Alessane did make significant strides to make King's Landing, the city, better for the common people to live in. Mm -hmm. But that only lasted as long as she was alive, which is something that is pointed out in the show. Which means that, like... Mm -hmm. While she was alive, the steps she took to make sure people had access to like clean drinking water and like food, the fact that they used to give out bread and uh, wool to people like either for free or on some kind of subsidy uh, during winter, and that they were making sure that like their right people were getting taxed and like the taxation wasn't getting fallen onto the poorest of the poor uh, on some level. All of those things is things that like Alison did according to what we read in Fire and Blood, but the second she died, all of that regressed because she was no longer around mm-hmm. to make sure that it was happening that way, right? Mm-hmm. And I th- I think what the interesting thing here is is it's like, you know, for most people you have to function within the system, and uh, you know do like you all you can do is the best you can do in the system in like your little corner. The tar- that doesn't apply the Targaryen, the ruling Targaryen king and queen. Yeah. They literally could change it. They li- There's no reason that they have to accept these rules as status quo. They could, I mean, and they don't. They turn around and say, we're exceptional, incest is good, and we'll get to that in our next section. You know, they change shit. Yeah. 
And like the, but they don't the, they don't undermine the system. They don't ch- really fundamentally change it from the inside, and they could. Mm-hmm. And that's the fun. Right. The, the interesting thing is that like the only time that like anyone gets the idea to try to do that is long after the dragons are dead, and they no longer have the power to actually enact that kind of change effectively mm-hmm. because Egg tries to do that as king, mm-hmm. but he can't. Because yeah. people are just not going to accept it. I mean, Daenerys is in a position where she could. Yes. Right? That's the thing. Is Daener- that like- Daenerys is in a position where she could. And I think the... And, I mean, Gretchen and I have talked about this, and this is not on point at all to our current podcast, but the the one of the things that would be, I think, a satisfied ending for A Song of Ice and Fire would be like a political revolution mm-hmm. and the installation of a, a new, more just system that is not a monarchy. Right. right. Because you and I also talked about that, like, the conquest was a perfect opportunity as well. It's like, look, Aegon right. and, and Visenya and Rhaenys could have come in and been like, all right, we're doing things differently here. We got dragons. You can't tell us no. Have Have you guys heard of socialism? You're going to love it. You know, yeah. like, they could have done that. Yeah, they <laughs> absolutely could have come in and completely changed the system. And instead they were like, you know what? Monarchy would be cool, actually. We want yeah, a monarchy. We're gonna take, yeah, we're going to take the like how the kings have it everywhere, but make it one but big like one. one. Yeah. That's and what we would be do. the only ones. And it's us. Mm-hmm. It's just us. And like, yeah. it did mostly put a stop to the endless civil wars that were happening. In the case that like there were only mostly. like... There was only one civil war, and then a couple <laughs> more later on. Yeah. Well, then there was a really big one. There was a really big one, but... Yeah. You know... The fact of the matter is that, like, before that point, there was just, like, lots of them. Yeah, it definitely, no, it was helpful. But again, it was helpful within the system. Yes. They just continued to use the system that was available. And, like, the, the reason that Daenerys is in a position to go much further than that is because she's like, okay, what if I just took this system and just burned it all to the ground? And mm-hmm. What if I just broke it all yeah. and we just start again? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like this is probably a good place for us to wrap up. Yeah. Um, yeah, this has been great. Awesome. Really good conversation yes, yeah. here. Of course, yeah, of course, oh, in man. the section where we're like, this section is really boring. Um, we end up talking <laughs> for like an hour, over an hour and a half. Um, as is per usual with Carolina and myself, we always find something to talk about. So of course, having Musa here meant that we found plenty to talk about. <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm, I'm so glad. glad. The kids. So glad. Yeah, glad I'm Musa. Thank you so much for joining on this episode. I I wonder if we'll hear Musa on another Maybe. episode. Maybe the next one in the feed. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe Caroline, we, were we record this today. once a week. What are you talking about? We don't. We we can't let people know that we just like chunk our Easter eggs reveal how how many weeks it is between recording and publishing. It's very true. <laughs> um. So, uh, Musa, I, I hope you had a good time. Yep. With us. Uh, yes, I, I did absolutely have a great time with you guys. All right, guys, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, if you want to email us, um, our email is um, oh god, it's House of Fire and Blood Podcast <laughs> at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram. I'm gonna learn it someday, Gretchen. Damn it! <laughs> um, it's just the title inst- of our podcast. <laughs> I know, I know, but I'm always like, what if it's wrong? Uh, our Instagram is House of Fire and Blood Podcast. You can follow us there as well. And until next time, remember, uh, if you have blue hair, you'll at least make it into a footnote. <laughs> um, I also say, um, and remember that if you're female presenting and want men to dismiss your involvement, all you got to do is cry. 
Okay, fair enough. And I just want to say, remember that just as you shouldn't tickle a sleeping dragon, you shouldn't interrupt a dragon's meal to make a political point. Yeah, I feel yes. like that could have gone another direction. <laughs> that would have been really funny. Vermithor just eats Rogue Harbor at the end. How dare you interrupt my meal, chomp. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks so much. We will talk to you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Do, okay, Caroline, do you have mm-hmm. a do you have a story for our Easter egg? I think our story is that Musa is here. Yeah, I think that we're very excited. Musa, yeah. do, you have any, do, Musa, do do you have any stories for our Easter egg? Uh, we accept any story at all. Okay, like I think okay, if we have to stay on topic or on brand, I've recently, very recently, because this is a thing that we've been doing on and off for like a year. Where I, we, I have just started reading the A Song of Ice and Fire series to my wife before we go to bed every night, and we are about like uh, seven or eight chapters, and we're about we're up to the point where Bran gets thrown out the window, and mm-hmm. um, there was a point where she was like very confused about like what was going on. Because I've read her parts of the story from up later in A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. So she has a very different idea of a lot of these characters than what they're like at the start of book one. Um, Amazing. So like the moment that Jamie throws Bran out the window is like actually really like shocking. Not just by virtue of the fact that like it's shocking in the moment, but by virtue of the fact that like Jamie is a much different character later on. Feast for Crows Jamie is totally different realizing that he's the kind of person who would just throw a small child out a window seemingly to his death is was like a gut punch that she was not looking forward to that's That's my awesome but I but da- David and Dan told us Jamie's the guy that threw the guy out of the window. He'll never change. I was going to say, I was going to say, Dave and Dan aspire to the level of gut punch that you just provided <laughs> for your yeah. wife. They aspire. <laughs> I don't know whether they ever get there, but like they would just like, mwah, they would love that. <laughs> Shock and awe. Yeah. Also, I need to eat these eggs. So um, if that's what I'm doing. If you hear crunching, don't worry about it. I will edit it out. Ignore me. I feel egg. like eggs should not be crunching. The shell. Oh, okay. It's a hard-boiled egg. I didn't just oh, open it. Oh, okay. I th- I would for some reason you said eggs. eggs. I thought you were eating scrambled eggs, and I was like, I feel like your scrambled eggs should not be crunchy. <laughs> Imagine if I just had like an un- like an uncooked egg. I just broke open. It's just eating. <laughs> I mean, people do that. That's a like a workout thing or something where you do eat raw raw egg yolks. Yeah. No, Gaston does that. Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Egg crisis in, yeah. in France. Oh. So manly. Just eating mm-hmm. those raw eggs. Eats many dozens of eggs. You know who I bet eats raw eggs in the morning? Jaharis. Rogar Baratheon. That... I was oh, going to say Jaharis now that he's all swole. <laughs> That's true. He did get swole. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he okay. went to the gym and realized those gains. Anyway, yeah. okay. So let's do the podcast. <laughs>